For those of you who are just uh, tuning in, we have been in a series this summer that we've titled just Q&A, Your Questions, God's Answers. And the question we're answering this morning is, what happens when a Christian dies? We're not going to be talking about the process of dying. We're going to be talking about the experience of death itself, specifically what happens at that moment for the believer in Jesus Christ. British author C.S. Lewis wrote, the statistics on death are impressive. One out of every one dies. You know, around the world, it's estimated that two people die each second, 105 die each minute, 6,316 die each hour, 151,600 die each day, 4.7 million die each month. 55.3 million die each year. And those are just the records we know of. And none of us is really comfortable discussing the inevitability of our own deaths, so no one really wants to. All of our human instincts are focused on physical survival, aren't they? I mean, on keeping a tight grip on life. Actor and writer, uh, screenwriter Woody Allen is famous for saying, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But the truth is that unless the Lord returns beforehand, each of us in this room will one day die physically and pass into eternity. It could be today. It could be 80 years from today. But death comes inevitably to everyone. Though death will always seem a mystery from this side of eternity, today's question is not a difficult one to answer. In fact, Pastor Evans said, just tell him when a Christian dies, they go to heaven and end the sermon there. It is the answer, but he knows I'm long-winded. In John 11, Jesus, arriving late for the death of Lazarus, meets a, a Mary sister of Lazarus who is beside herself and really is quite disappointed with Jesus. And her first words to him when he arrives on the scene days after Lazarus has died is, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. In the course of that conversation, Jesus said to her, Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. Hear that again. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
is presented there in John 11 as a rhetorical question because Mary never actually answers it. But it is the question for all of us, for all of life. Do we accept that Jesus is who he says he is, the resurrection and the life? And what are we going to do about that? Are we going to believe in him, which means trusting that what he accomplished on our behalf through the cross uh, was sufficient for us and we accept it as our own? Do you believe this, not just intellectual acceptance, but putting your full weight into that confidence. Jesus was telling Mary that those who believe in Jesus, when they physically die, pass at that moment from death to life. Those believers who are alive when Jesus returns will in fact never experience physical death at all. The apostles, Apostle Paul's encouragement to the believers in Thessalonica echoes Jesus' words, provides some further detail about the event known as the rapture of the church. By the way, I personally believe that this prophetic event will take place very, very soon. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Let me just pause right there and just frame this for us a little bit. The, the believers in Thessalonica are, are predominantly Gentile believers. Uh, they don't have a, a wealth of biblical background. Uh, they're, they're wondering, what's up with this whole thing? There are Christians who are dying. What, what's going to happen to them? Are they going to be, are they going to go home when, when Jesus returns? Because they believed it was, as we should today, it was just around the corner. I don't want you to be uninformed. Why? That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He didn't say that you may not grieve. He's saying that you may not grieve in the way that pagans do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What a day that's going to be. In fact, I think it would be really fun to just be right on the edge of the cemetery when all that happens. 
I mean, you might subsequently ascend into heaven with a lot of dirt on you. But what great encouragement, right? So what will it be like for the believer who does die? The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5 eight, saying that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. We would rather be away from these earthly bodies, he writes, for then we will be at home with the Lord. What's the point? The point is that if you're a believer in Jesus, the moment you die, in that moment, you will enter into the very presence of the Lord. One of the things I liked to do in the summer when I was a child was to uh, to take a sleeping bag out and just sleep under the stars, no tent, just throw a sleeping bag on the grass and sleep outside. And I will not, cannot forget an experience I had on one of those occasions. I had gone to sleep lying on my back, and I was awakened in the middle of the night, and I was staring up into a summer night sky that was just awash in bright stars, and it was just one of those nights that was crystal clear. The stars were just brilliant. I went right back to sleep and woke up hours later, still on my back, opened my eyes and was now looking up into a a blue sky, bright with the light of a blazing sun, you know, just that moment. And the reason I've never forgotten that experience is that it just startled me, Not, not the waking up. What startled me was that the passage of time between seeing a star-studded night sky and then bright sunshine seemed to me not more than the amount of time necessary to merely blink. I felt like I had blinked. And that memory stands out to me as a metaphor for what will be our experience at the moment of our death. We'll close our eyes in one world and open them in another. We'll close our eyes in the darkness of death and instantaneously open them again in the morning of a bright new day in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And and the Word of God says that that day, that day, will never, ever end. A little girl who was losing her battle with a chronic illness asked her mother what dying is like. And her mother, already grieving, swallowed hard and shot up a prayer for insight into how, without completely falling apart, to answer answer her daughter's very important question. And in a moment, she knew what to say. She, She began, do you remember, honey, when we moved into this house and Daddy prepared your bedroom just the way you liked it? The little girl smiled and nodded. And do you remember days when you played so hard that when evening came, you you would be so, so tired, too tired to get ready for bed or even to walk to your bedroom, and you just fall asleep on the couch in your clothes. And then the next morning when you opened your eyes, you'd be surprised to find yourself in your own bed, in your own room, wearing your pajamas. You fell asleep in one place and woke up in another, wearing entirely different clothing. 
You woke up there because when you fell asleep, your father, who loves you, loves you, loves you, had come and carried you in his big, strong arms to your room. Honey, I think death is just like that. We just wake up one morning to find ourselves in another room, the room where we actually belong, the room that Jesus prepared just for us, wearing different clothes, because our Heavenly Father wrapped us in his strong and loving arms and carried us there. What a great picture that is. In the gospel that bears his name, Luke recorded a story told by Jesus that really provides a veritable treasure trove of information in answer today to today's question. And would you stand with me and let's read it aloud together. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. You may be seated. There, there's so much in this little story that it's, it's hard to do it justice in the time that we have. But let me just make a few observations. Let's begin with this, that there was a, a rich man clothed in purple and fine linen who features sumptuously every day. And that, this, is, this is his experience of life. He's wealthy. Uh, he's got it all. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dog came and licked his sores. Poor man died and was carried by the angels. Abraham's side, the rich man also died and was buried. So, <clears throat> two very different life experiences. It would be easy for us in some of the ways that we think today to say, well, there you go. The rich man goes to hell, the poor man goes to heaven. That's 
that's kind of one of the, the narratives of our lifetime. Rich people are bad. Poor people are good. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. But he is describing two very different life orientations, very, very different life experiences. The contrast couldn't be greater. And they both die. The first observation I've made about that this week is that the Christian will not be alone at death. The Christian will not be alone at death. Notice verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. This poor man, Lazarus, was escorted. He was carried. He was ushered into heaven by angels. Jesus once said that when a sinner repents, there's rejoicing in heaven. If the angels celebrate when a sinner repents, how much more will they celebrate when a saved sinner comes home? So if you're a believer in Jesus, from the moment of your death, you may very well have encounters with angels. But it gets better. Lazarus was carried by the angels to a place called Abraham's side. Now the older translations will have the expression Abraham's bosom. I'm so glad that the ESV says Abraham's side because I've just always found the other expression a little awkward. But but what is this place? What is this place? If you recall, Abraham is the spiritual father of all those who are justified by faith. Genealogically, he's the father of the Jewish race. So the rich man refers to him as Father Abraham from a relational perspective, a genetic perspective, if you will. But really, Abraham is the spiritual father of all those who are justified by faith. Abraham's side, then, is that community of all who have died, who in life were included by faith in the family of God. In other words, Abraham's side is a place of relationship. It's a place of intimate community with other believers. You remember that Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, when you die here on this cross, you will be in that moment with me in relationship, in community, in paradise. It seems that Abraham's side and paradise are two ways of describing the same place. Years ago at uh, my previous church, I was called to the hospital to be with a man named Len. Uh, Len was, uh, I'll just say he was a crusty dude from the forests of Shelton. And he was, he was just, he was a a good-hearted man, but he was just, uh, he was abrasive. Um, He was unpolished. He was inarticulate. But in this moment, he was dying. And I was called to the hospital, and I was there in the room with him and his wife, and it seems like I recall a couple other people being in the room. 
And Len had been laying there for a long time in the bed, just out of it, you know, not comatose maybe, but out of it, quiet. And suddenly he sat up, his eyes came open, he sat up in bed. And I thought it was because down the hall came his children and grandchildren and assorted other relatives and entered in the room and surrounded his bed. But that's what, not what triggered what happened with Len. Len, this guy, <laughs> inarticulate, crusty, abrasive, began to prophesy. And out of his mouth came the most eloquent praises of God I think I've ever heard. And he reached out his arms and he gathered in his family and said, he just drew them in and he began to speak of the, the attributes of God and just to glorify God. And, and he encouraged each of them to put their faith in Christ. And then he fell silent for a while. And then his eyes came open again and he looked up and as, as if he was looking through a wall and he said, here they come. Here they come. They're coming for me. And just moments later, he passed. I think Len saw angels in the distance coming to take him home. See, the one who believes in Jesus at that moment of death will not pass through the veil alone. I hope you're encouraged by that. It won't be a lonely moment for you at the moment of your death. You may be lonely in your dying. You will not be lonely. You will not be alone in the moment of your death. You will pass from death into life in the presence of angels, of other believers, and most importantly, in the presence of Jesus. Not so the no longer rich man. He, by contrast, appears to be very much alone. So many of our popular images of hell portray a party atmosphere. But Jesus seems to be implying that those who have in this life rejected Christ will spend eternity in a kind of solitary confinement of the most intense emotional pain, deepest regret, and unending sorrow. Let me just clear up a few other misconceptions. You will not be an angel. You won't, like Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life, get your wings when the bell rings. You were made for something much better. You are and will remain for all eternity a child of God. You will be a part of the bride of Christ, the most highly honored in heaven. You will not be reincarnated. You won't go through an endless cycle of being born and living and dying. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You will not pass through a place called purgatory. Uh, you, if you don't have a Catholic background, background may not recognize the doctrine of purgatory, but that doctrine says that those who aren't bad enough to go to hell, but not really good enough to go to heaven, 
enter into a place where their sins are purged, purgatory. The doctrine of purgatory is found nowhere in the Bible. But the Bible does say that the blood of Jesus Christ washes away all of our sin. Uh, that Jesus offered one sacrifice for all sin, for all time. That his sacrifice was complete and sufficient. That it's by faith alone, not by keeping the sacraments, not by doing good works, that we are saved. The decision you make about Jesus Christ in this life will seal your eternal destiny. There will be no intermediate state. There will be no second chances. You will experience no break in consciousness when you die, whether or not you are a Christian when you die. You will possess the capacity to think, to feel emotion, apparently to feel sensory pain and pleasure, to see and to communicate. Notice verses 22 to 24 of Luke 16. The rich man also died, was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, and that word in the Greek that's translated torment speaks to a psychological kind of conflict. He lifted up his eyes and saw. He could see. He saw Abraham far off, and he saw Lazarus at his side. And he called out. He can communicate. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, sensory experience, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now this is Hades, Jesus says. This is kind of like pre-hell. It's not the lake of fire. But this no longer rich man is already in flame, in anguish. In Revelation chapter 6, John, in that grand vision of, of heaven and the, the end of time, John saw in heaven the souls of martyrs, not their physical bodies. But notice with me what Revelation 6, 9 through 10 says. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They could think. They could reason. They could feel emotion. They had memory of their life on earth. And they had the capacity to communicate. Even though they are in the form of souls, it says. So you will have those capacities too from the moment you die. You will recognize those whom you love who have preceded you in death. Sometimes we I hear the question, does, will I recognize my mom or my dad or my grandparents or, or a child that has died and gone before them? Will, will, will I recognize them? Will they recognize me? And the answer is yes. You will know more in heaven than you knew here on earth. You will remember more in heaven than you remember here on earth. You'll know people whom you've never met. 
there will be in heaven no need for name tags, which I think is great because I hate name tags. <laughs> Notice that the no longer rich man recognized Abraham. And sometimes we read these things, we just gloss over them. We go, all those Bible guys, they all know each other. You know, even those centuries separated them. But, but this no longer rich man looks and he sees Abraham and recognizes Abraham far off. And he sees Lazarus and he remembers Lazarus and he, he calls to Abraham by name. In Matthew 17, 1 through 3, there's the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. It says, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter, James, and John here recognize Moses and Elijah. What's up with that? How do they recognize Moses and Elijah? You're going to remember your earthly life. You're going to remember the people who populated it, friends, family members, co-workers. Notice in Luke 16, 27 and 28 that, that not only does this no longer rich man remember Lazarus, but he remembers his father and his five brothers. He said, then I beg you, father, to send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And by the way, a side note here, isn't it interesting that this no longer rich man in Hades, in torment and anguish, in his unredeemed state, still considers Lazarus his subordinate, who is the one who ought to serve him. Isn't that interesting? As we go on, we learn that your eternal destiny will be irreversible. But Abraham said, child, speaking now to the no longer rich man, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. It's a done deal. Uh, an impassable, uncrossable chasm. As I read that, I thought, why, why would those from heaven even consider going across to those in hell? And I thought, because in our redeemed, resurrected state, we have the compassion of Christ. If we were to look across the chasm, our hearts would be moved to compassion. It's not hard to imagine why someone from hell might want to cross over into heaven, is it? So your eternal destiny will be irreversible, and you will receive a spiritual body. You'll receive a spiritual body. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 53, 
The Apostle Paul addresses the question of what our bodies will be like in heaven. And he compares our physical bodies with a seed that has to die in order to come to life. If you've ever bought a packet of seeds at the store and taken it home to, to plant those seeds, to sow those seeds, when you open the packet, you go, man, those seeds are ugly. You know, nothing like the, the beautiful picture on the, on the seed packet, right? Because what you sow is not like what grows. And that's what Paul is saying here. He makes the point that we cannot predict from the appearance of the seed, which is our physical body, the appearance of what will grow from that seed. But God has already determined both its nature and its appearance. So listen just to what he says in verses 42 to 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Your body in heaven will never perish. It'll never get sick. It'll never get tired. It's imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. If you've ever seen a dead body, you know that that's true. And is raised in glory. Your, your spiritual body will be glorious. It's sown in weakness. You die from weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And in verse 49, Paul says that our spiritual bodies in heaven will be like the body of Jesus and that this transformation will happen in the twinkling of an eye, he says, at the moment that Jesus comes for his bride, the church, and says the dead will be raised imperishable and will be we, referring to those who are alive on the earth at that moment, will be changed in an instant. By the way, I would, I would encourage you, I won't take the time to do it right now, but I would encourage you to, to peruse the, the ends of the four Gospels, the, the appearances of the resurrected Christ. And notice the kind of body that he has. For example, when he appeared to Mary at the tomb, Mary didn't recognize him. Why was that? She has spent years with him. She knew him very, very well. But for a moment, she didn't recognize him, it seems, until he decided she should. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus, same story. He walked with them along the road, just like any other dude, and they didn't recognize him. They were talking about him. They didn't recognize him. But when he chose to reveal himself, they recognized him. Disciples are in a a room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. And Jesus just walks through the door, just appears suddenly with them, and later vanishes just as quickly. What will that body be like? You're going to have superpowers, people. Superpowers. John the Apostle wrote, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know, we know, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, 
because we shall see him as he is. There's going to be something in that moment about being in the presence of the glorified Christ that's going to be the the agent that, that affects the change. The famous 19th century evangelist and pastor D.L. Moody wrote in 1899, Someday you'll read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. He went on in that same statement and said, I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. See, you can have assurance this morning that you will be with Jesus when you die. You can have absolute confidence of that. You don't have to go through life wondering, have I done enough? Have I been enough? Does God really love me? Does God really have a place prepared for me as Jesus said he would? And I'd like to just direct you to what I think is probably the most well-known verse in the entire Bible. John 3, verse 16. Jesus speaking to his friend Nicodemus, For God so loved the world. Whom did God love? The world. Who's included in the world? Are you included in the world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What did, what did God's love move him to do? hear you. Gave his only son. He gave that which was most precious to him. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let me ask you this morning, would God ever lie? So what did Jesus promise us who believe in him? eternal life. So the question is, will you choose heaven? You see, hell is not a punishment that God imposes on you. Hell is a choice that you make today. It's a choice you make this side of death, this side of the grave. God never sends anyone to heaven, or to hell rather. You choose it. You choose heaven. You choose hell. Let me ask you this morning, will you choose to put your trust in Jesus Christ as the forgiver of your sin, the leader of your life, the savior of your soul? Jesus went on in that discussion with Nicodemus. He said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Sometimes people feel like that's what what the case is. But that's not why God sent his son into the world. He said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Now listen how he concludes this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So it's as simple as this, as Evan, Pastor Evan put it, when a Christian dies, they go to heaven. But a Christian goes to heaven because they believed in Jesus. They put their faith in the only one who could save them, the one who came to save them from their sins. And my prayer for you this morning, if you haven't made that decision, is that you make it today before it's too late, before you die or Jesus comes for you. Either way, at that moment, it'll be too late.